It's hot. Real hot. Again. You know how that makes me feel? Lazy. We have three dogs, and when it's about 108 degrees Fahrenheit outside, and the pavement is the internal cooking temperature of an overdone pork chop, you'll see them all inside, napping on the tile floor, stretched out, doing nothing, enjoying the coolness of the tile without a care in the world. I mean, okay, to be fair, they do that on cold days too, but still. It makes me want to do the same on something a bit softer, and why shouldn't I? It's summer vacation. It's a time for relaxation, lazy days, catching up on me time, and allowing yourself to literally just do nothing. Or is it? I'm Dr. Ryan Strait, Assistant Professor of Educational Technology at the University of Arizona, and this is The New Professor. Obviously it isn't, because here I am doing this, and this definitely falls into the work category. So, speaking of work... How did this whole summer vacation thing start? Initially, in the early 19th century, schools didn't have the nine-month, three-month split like we have today. Instead, they worked on two terms, summer and winter. Why? Well, for the rural population, you plant in the spring and harvest in the fall. Students living in urban areas that weren't reliant on farming had a different kind of school calendar, upwards of all but four weeks of the year in session. So imagine that, an average of three months of straight schoolwork and then one week off year-round. It's pretty brutal if you ask me. And clearly, they felt the same way since attending school wasn't required by law, it wasn't unheard of for something like a third of students to actually end up attending the whole time. This ended up bothering people. Horace Mann and his contemporaries set out to fix this problem by standardizing the school year across locations, getting a handle on the truancy problem in the growing cities, while ensuring the rural students weren't lagging behind in their educations. As one might expect, looking at when a single larger break could fit into both urban and rural schedules, the summer was the obvious choice. It didn't impact farming, for one. And also, think of something that wasn't around in mid-19th century. Air conditioning. Sticking a few dozen students in a single room with no AC was not only detrimental to learning, but it was a serious health concern. So, summer it was. And still is. Although that's changing. And speaking of changes to calendars, let's clear something up real quick. Daylight savings was not about getting more hours of farm work out of the kids during summer vacation. Daylight savings time began in 1918 as a way to be more cost and fuel efficient. And spoiler, in some places it backfired, but that's a different episode. Anyway, the current academic year for public schools averages 180 days, but it is often calculated in total hours and can be different for grade levels. 
The hours lost to snow days must be made up, for example. And when I was in school at the end of the last century, and wow, that is weird when you put it like that, we attended in six-week terms, one starting immediately after the previous one ending. We had a single long summer break and a small winter break, plus all the obligatory holidays. Shortly thereafter, when I was already gone, there was a move towards a year-round cycle of nine-week terms followed by three-week vacations in order to maintain that 180-day academic year. And that academic year length, it's not universal. South Korea's academic year is 220 days long. Japan's is 243. In fact, according to the Pew Research Center in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, among 33 mostly developed nations, annual total intended instructional time averaged 790 hours for primary students, ranging from 470 in Russia to 1,007 in Chile, while for the international equivalent of U.S. middle schoolers, average annual required hours increased to 925, ranging from 741 hours in Sweden to 1,167 in Mexico. But see, the interesting thing here in the U.S. is that instructional time rules are set by the states. So there can be variety from one state to another. Texas, for example, requires 180 days, but at 7 hours per day, which includes lunch and recess and whatnot, meaning 1,260 hours throughout the year. Minnesota has no requirement for the minimum number of days, only hours. Colorado clocks in at an even 160, while Louisiana comes in at 177. So, yeah, variation. So what about summer school, as it's called? We offer college classes in the summer, and they're very popular. But why would anybody want to give up their me time just to spend more time with me over the summer? Beyond the obvious reasons, of course. Well, this may come as a surprise, but life happens. The presumption is always, of course, that if you signed up for classes in the fall or the spring, that you successfully completed those classes, and you're still on schedule to graduate when you'd planned. And of course, that doesn't always happen. Summer's a great time to make up for those kinds of situations, or perhaps you just want to retake a class to improve your GPA. It happens all the time. Or heck, perhaps you just want to graduate earlier than planned. Summer classes provide for that opportunity as well. I did it virtually every year in my undergraduate and graduate work. I actually enjoyed summer classes too. They're typically shorter and because of that, more intense. I mean, heck, you may find some classes that are just a few Saturdays from eight to five. Again, intense, but for some people that works really, really well. Plus, if you worry about falling out of practice or getting out of that learner mindset, summer's a great way to keep that pot boiling. Sometimes classes you need to take during the school year get canceled. Sometimes those classes are prereqs for other classes that you also need to take. Summer can also provide opportunities to get those prereqs in so you don't throw off your schedule. Of course, your financial aid may not cover summer classes, and that's something you would need to look into. It also, on the flip side of staying in learner mode, means you're always in learner mode. And that can, for some, be a bad thing. You know, time to decompress can be indispensable for some. So while there are logistical considerations for what to do over summer break, there's also just that. How do you mentally deal with being on vacation? So let's presume 
that you actually do get a summer vacation. Maybe you're a college student not taking classes, or you're a teacher like me and you're not teaching classes. Or maybe you just saved up your vacation days to get away for a nice chunk of time. Perhaps you're self-employed and you just work it that way. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Let's talk about vacation and what it does to you. Did you know on average that US workers get 13 days of vacation a year? That's on average. An even more striking fact is that a third of people don't even use all their vacation time. People miss out on roughly three days a year. So what does that leave them with? 10. 10 days a year of vacation. France averages almost 40. Yeah. But see, part of this is that there's this pervasive work culture in the U.S. that doesn't so much champion work your fingers to the bone as it just kind of accepts it. And I'm very much guilty of this, even on vacation when I'm in another hemisphere with no internet connection and no way to even get the work done should I want to, I start feeling guilty. If you have time to lean, you have time to clean, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I'm on vacation right now, and I've spent the last week working and I'm doing this. I really do struggle with actually disconnecting, so if you feel that way too, you are definitely not alone. But see, here's the thing. Vacation is actually really good for you. Like, really good. And there are some ways to actually psychologically make the best of your time if you can swing it. And links to sources and whatnot in the show notes, as always. So three things, basically. Right. Number one, plan ahead. And this might mean doing some extra long days before the vacation, but if you can make sure that as much is done as possible and running on autopilot before you leave you'll actually be removing the handle from that pump. There's nothing for you to do. Okay, there's always something, but you know what I mean. Number two, get off the grid. You don't have to give your friends and family on social media a live stream of your vacation. If you struggle with that, try to keep all of your pictures offline until you get home. And then actually take a little notebook or a journal with you on vacation. Write things down. Then, when you do get home, you can put up one big adventure or share it however you want. Doesn't matter. Likewise, if you do have to get some work done, simply log on, do precisely what needs done, offer no more of your time than what that took, and then go away again. An out-of-office email can really help in that regard. Finally, number three, assume all is well. I would imagine that with very few exceptions, there are no emergencies at work that need your immediate attention and only your immediate attention. Be an optimist. Expect that everything will go swimmingly. Of course, that's very work vacation focused, but it's not unheard of for folks with the quote-unquote traditional summer vacation to act in very similar ways. I have colleagues that will put up their out-of-office response the day after grades are submitted, log off of their work email on their phones, and genuinely, and I mean literally, not think about work until their contract technically resumes the week before classes start. I am absolutely envious of that ability. I just can't do it. And I'm definitely not alone in that. Which is why I'm doing this. And speaking of this, I think that's probably enough for today. I'd say I'm going to turn everything off and go have some me time, but I'm probably going to do what I always do and go work on something. So do as I say and not as I do. As always, 
Thank you for listening to this little podcasty thing of mine. If you found it entertaining or informative or useful, please do subscribe and rate it on the podcatcher of your choice, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or however you listen. And as usual, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at NewProfCast and various other places on the interwebs. And you can find more, including show notes and transcripts, on the website at thenewprofessor.com. Until next time.